Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Good evening. I'm Ali Velshi. I'm in for Alex Wagner this evening. We've got a very, very full show for you. There's a lot of news developing tonight, including developments having to do with the Supreme Court. And you guessed it, yet more allegations of corruption on that court. Uh, The Supreme Court, as you know, for several months, we've been discussing it on this show, has been steeped in allegations that they are not governing themselves, that they are not in a position to determine when the justices at the Supreme Court are doing things that don't really measure up to the standards we think should be applied to them. Well, for some of you, that's old news, except there's actually more news. And it's got to do with, wait for it, Clarence Thomas. Uh, Now, what I'm about to show you may not seem central to understanding our current political moment, but unfortunately, it actually is. Take a look at this. This is the photo of the opening ceremony for a festival called Bohemian Grove in California's wine country a few years back. The performers are burning an effigy that is meant to represent, quote, worldly cares and concerns, end quote. The annual two week long festival is a place for people like Eric Prince and Henry Kissinger to let loose. As ProPublica put it today, $500 bottles of wine flow freely and, quote, members consume clam chowder and chili by the gallon, end quote. It's also all dudes, men only, living in what ProPublica described as essentially adult fraternity houses. And ProPublica reports today that Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas is a regular. You remember Harlan Crow? He's Justice Thomas's billionaire buddy who reportedly paid for Thomas to go on luxury vacations, who bought Thomas's mom's house while letting her live in it and paid for the private school tuition of the relative that Thomas raised like a son. Well, today, ProPublica reports that Harlan Crow also bought Tom, brought Thomas as a guest to this annual Bohemian Grove Festival. Flight records show that Crow has repeatedly dispatched his private jet to pick up Justice Thomas on dates corresponding to the festival. And while ProPublica could only confirm six trips, with, which the justice, by the way, did not disclose, Several people told ProPublica that before the pandemic, they saw Clarence Thomas there just about every year. According to this report, Thomas was a featured speaker at the event at least once. Justice Thomas was the actual entertainment. In response to questions about these trips, Crow called Thomas, quote, a man of incredible integrity, end quote, whom he has never heard discussing pending legal matters with anyone. Neither Crow nor Justice Thomas responded to ProPublica's questions about whether the justice reimbursed Crow for these trips. Somehow that remarkable reporting about the new Justice Thomas's unethical quandary is just the tip of the iceberg in ProPublica's reporting. Let's go back to a a picture of Justice Thomas at this Bohemian Grove Festival. With him in the middle, you'll recognize that face. That's Ken Burns. He's the filmmaker. More importantly, the tall guy on the right is the billionaire conservative megadonor, David Koch. You know him as one of the Koch brothers. ProPublica notes that during these annual retreats, the Kochs often discussed political strategy with fellow guests. 
Now, we have no idea if the Kochs talked politics with Justice Thomas there, but their schmoozing appears to have led to something arguably worse. Every winter, the Koch Brothers Conservative Activist Network holds its marquee fundraising event in Palm Springs, California. ProPublica reports that the network often rents out an entire hotel for the event, keeping out eavesdroppers, and that documents left behind are methodically shredded. They really do not want people knowing what's going on in there. Today, today, ProPublica reports that Justice Thomas has attended Koch's fundraising events at least twice, including the one in Palm Springs. According to ProPublica, donors typically have to give at least $100,000 a year to get invited to the event. Quote, those who give in the millions receive special treatment, including dinners with Charles Koch and high-profile guests. ProPublica confirmed that Thomas has attended at least one of those dinners as a speaker. Justice Thomas was the fundraising draw this time. A spokesperson for the Koch Network told ProPublica that Thomas wasn't present for fundraising conversations. But one former Koch Network fundraising staffer put it this way, quote, offering a high level donor the experience of meeting with someone like that. That's huge. End quote. It's particularly huge when you consider that just two years ago, one of the Koch Network's groups was the plaintiff in a Supreme Court case about the ability for nonprofit groups to keep their donors secret. And Justice Thomas ruled in the Koch group's favor just a few years after he attended one of the network's secret fundraising events. Justice Thomas did not, once again, respond to ProPublica's request for comment on any of this. And the Supreme Court does not have a written ethics code. They essentially police themselves or not. That's the problem. I'm joined now by Dahlia Lithwick, senior editor at Slate, host of the Amicus podcast and author of the book Lady Justice, which is a fantastic book. And it's now out in paperback. Dahlia, good to see you. Um, If this weren't actually serious and about our Supreme Court, it's ludicrous. Uh, It's it's ludicrous at every level. Yeah. And it's the kind of numbing effect of, you know, it was funny with the Glacier Martinis. It was funny when, you know, Sam Alito was holding the big salmon yep. and we all realized, oh, Sam Alito is the salmon, right? right? He's the trophy right, here. Right. Same thing. Right. And that's right. So there's this interesting line in the world that, that the Supreme Court is having some trouble with right now. And it is this what's a gift, what's socializing, what's influence peddling, what's helping people raise money, what's drawing donors who then subscribe to uh, or, or, or give to political causes. All of this is getting muddied, and we have no system to govern how it's supposed to go. We have just assumed that people who hold these august roles would govern themselves through the lens of propriety. Right. And you don't have to think back all that far. 1969, Abe Fortas took, you know, pennies compared to to what Clarence Thomas and Justice Alito have taken and was run off the court by his own colleagues, including the liberal chief justice, uh, Earl Warren, who said, you are making us look bad. And I don't even care that I'm appointed by a Democrat and you're appointed by a Democrat. I don't care. You have to be gone. And that was understood. And the court ran him out for much lesser offense. So here we are now. And we've got Chief Justice John Roberts doubling down, 
saying, you know, the Congress can't touch us. I I don't have to show up and testify. Yep. And we don't have, have to answer it to anybody. Nope. ProPublica is just a, a journalism outlet, but they don't have to tell anybody anything. And, and Justice Alito, who gives an interview yep. uh, to The Wall Street Journal in which he asserts that Congress has no authority over the yes. court. So, like, that's where we are. So let's ex- let's discuss that for a second, because when he said that, I, I, I sort of went, you know, obviously to my Constitution and and, and tried to make sense of this. Our our co-equal branches of government are supposed to be co-equal and independent of one another. But we have mechanisms. They have been flawed over the last few years, including our impeachment mechanism for for the president of the United States. But there are mechanisms. Was there never one for the Supreme Court? What was meant to happen if the Supreme Court justices get involved in untoward behavior ethically? Some version of what happened, I think, to Justice Fortas, which is the court said to themselves, selves, we have neither the power of the purse nor the sword. We only have public legitimacy. If the American people want to just ignore our rulings, they can. If Congress wants to just turn off the lights, they can. So let's conduct ourselves as though we are above reproach. Mm-hmm. And the other piece of this that I think is really heartbreaking is that the same justices who are saying that, you know, government sucks and the CDC sucks. And that's the the heart of the Mm -hmm. Chevron doctrine, right? Right. We're going to cripple the administrative state are the ones who don't care about the legitimacy of their own branch. So how can you keep harping on how bad government is without kind of looking at your own house? Let's talk about the the Chevron doctrine for a moment. This is something that Justice Thomas uh, is involved in. Senator Dick Durbin has asked him to be to recuse himself from an upcoming case. There are a lot. I know you've talked about it a lot today. There are a lot of people who don't know what the Chevron doctrine is, but it has to do with our agencies of government and what authority they have. Uh, People will have heard this discussion about the dismantling of the administrative state. Definitely the kind of thing that folks who don't think about this a lot could glaze over on. But it's actually really important in this particular context. Right. I mean, this is any agency under Chevron. This is a, a case from 1984, and it seemed an uncontroversial principle. Like when we talk about agencies, CDC, EPA, right. anything right. like that. Any, any agency. If there is something written that is ambiguous, mm-hmm. the court says in Chevron defer to the agency's own reading of the statute. That makes sense, right? right? Because we can't, there's, what are we going to do? Send every question up to the court? Right. Justice Thomas was for the Chevron doctrine until suddenly he wasn't. Mm -hmm. And Justice Thomas is an interesting character because he doesn't change his mind very often. Right. And so he went from being a very bold supporter of the notion that, of course, we let agencies construe their own statutes to, huh, Not so much anymore. And that doesn't happen very much when you're Clarence Thomas. And I am in no way suggesting that hanging out with the Koch brothers who have spent decades trying to dismantle the Chevron doctrine and thus dismantle the regulatory state so they can pollute and so they can do all the things they want to do. I'm not saying. But it looks messy at this point. And and I think this is important to understand for folks who, who don't follow the Chevron doctrine. This idea of the administrative state. Whether you think about it much or not, if you are really rich or you're a company that wants to throw your garbage into the river or uh, burn your smokestacks, you don't want regulation. Now, there are some conservatives who legitimately just are not they're not into much regulation. They don't want government to regulate much. But in this particular case, there are lots of places with particular interests to want these government agencies to be weakened. 
Exactly right. And in the last few years, we've seen the EPA, yep. the Clean Water Act uh, dismantled. We've seen uh, President Biden's student loan forgiveness all done under the rubric of this large theory that you don't want government bureaucrats right. controlling your life. It's a basic libertarian principle. But we can't function as a society if we don't have agencies that are making sure that workers are protected, that health is protected, that the environment is protected. And so in effect, what you're looking at is an effort to say all bets are off, no regulations, no administrative state. And again, I think the cynicism of saying government is bad, government is mm-hmm. bad, government is bad, when your own court is a hot steaming mess. Right. Right. So you're separating the issues. In other words, there may be a debate to be had. It started largely with Ronald Reagan, who came out and sort of said, I'm going to dismantle all the stuff that was really, um, you know, they've been built up through the 30s and the 40s, the big government, all the things that government did. We're going to now try and make small government started with that. That could that can be a valid debate that people can have in in different fora. The, The issue is. If the Supreme Court has to make decisions, and that is where these decisions come about, whether the EPA has power over something or any given agency does, then we'd like to know that the Supreme Court justices are squeaky clean on the issue, that they will have no relationship to anybody who may have an interest before the court or an interest in the dismantling of the administrative state. That and the people who should be making decisions about clean water are experts and scientists and people who have studied it their whole lives, and not Justice Alito spitballing about what he thinks environmental policy should be. I mean, the whole point of having an administrative state is that you people it with experts and scientists and facts. And we have seen this move at the Supreme Court in the last couple of terms where the court arrogates unto itself more and more and more power to decide issues. Mm -hmm. And I guess we're both landing at the exact same depressing place, which is a Supreme Court that is going to seize power from state courts and from uh, the executive branch and from the the federal government should be squeaky clean. Yeah. And it's not feeling all that squeaky clean today. Uh, nice to see you again, as always. Thank you for this. Thank you. Dahlia Lithwick. Uh, her book, Lady Justice, is now out in paperback. I had, a, I had the privilege of talking to Dahlia about it when it first came out. If you haven't picked up a copy, read it. It's really important. Much more ahead tonight, including the unusual guest who will walk the picket line alongside the United Auto Workers on Tuesday. But first, a jaw-dropping indictment of a sitting United States senator. Bribery allegations involving hidden cash, gold bars, and a $60,000 Mercedes. We'll bring you the details after this. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. 
The indictment alleges that Hanna, Uribe, and Davies provided bribes in the form of cash, gold, home mortgage payments, a low-show or a no-show job for Nadine Menendez, a Mercedes-Benz, and other things of value to the senator and his wife. The senator and his wife in question are the senator, the senior senator from New Jersey, the Democrat Bob Menendez and his wife Nadine. They are facing allegations that they took bribes in exchange for using the senator's influence on behalf of three businessmen and the Egyptian government. Now, in a federal indictment unveiled today, investigators say they found nearly $500,000 in cash stuffed into jackets bearing the senator's name. Envelopes and a safe that they found gold bars in worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Senator Menendez and his wife each deny any wrongdoing. The senator released a statement saying in part, quote, they wrote these charges as they wanted. The facts are not as presented. Prosecutors did that the last time. And look what a trial demonstrates. People should remember that before accepting the prosecutor's version, end quote. Now, when he says prosecutors did that last time, Senator Menendez is referring to a previous criminal trial in 2017 that ended with a hung jury. Today's indictment appears to make Menendez the first sitting senator in U.S. history to be indicted on two unrelated criminal allegations. Senator Menendez has stepped down as the chair of the Foreign Relations Committee, but there are growing calls from his own state and his party, including from New Jersey's Democratic governor, for Menendez to resign. Senator Menendez's defiance saying in a statement that he's not going anywhere. This latest scandal scandal comes as Menendez is up for re-election next year. And, of course, Democrats hold a very slim majority in the Senate. Joining us now is NBC News justice and legal affairs analyst Anthony Coley. Great to see you. Thank you for being with us. Good to be with you. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about this. There's a lot going on. I want to start with the the indictment and the details. Right. Uh, gold bars, a job that maybe happened or didn't happen, money stuffed in jackets, a Mercedes. Tell me about this. It's an astonishing level of detail. It reads almost like a bad yeah. episode of The Sopranos, Ali. I mean, what we have here is a sitting United States senator Google searching uh, the price of a kilo of gold just as he's receiving a kilo of gold and then later not putting it on his financial disclosure form. We have co-defendants in this case um, giving him hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then the FBI searches the apartment and they find uh, the fingerprints of those uh, co-defendants in the Menendez home. I mean, we have stuff like the State Department sharing sensitive information with the senator, who then, through his wife, uh, shares it with a foreign government, in this case, Egypt. This is an incredibly um, tight case, and he has an uphill battle to climb. I will say this. The other thing this case really proves is that DOJ isn't politicized, like Jim Jordan and others have said. This This is a Democrat, a long-term, important Democrat. Exactly. And this is a Democratic attorney general who uh, followed the facts wherever uh, they, they, they took, and that led to this indictment. I would note here, um, Ali, that this is not the first Democrat that this Justice Department has charged. Mm -hmm. Right now, as we sit here at 30 Rock in New York, the former chair of the Democratic Party in Louisiana is serving uh, time in federal prison for wire fraud. There were charges against the House Speaker in Illinois, uh, Madigan, for corruption charges. So there are people on both sides of the aisle who have been held accountable by this Justice Department. Let's talk about... um if people haven't been following the story closely, as you right. said, there's a lot of detail in right. here. What's the alleged quid pro quo? 
Yeah, it is that the senator uh, would do favors, mm-hmm. really, for these businessmen uh, in New Jersey. Uh, there is allegations that um, a halal um, meat uh, manufacturer they received manufacturer they received uh, the only. Um, they were they would be the only vendor to approve um, this type of certification from the Egyptian government. I mean, there's 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 a lot here. Uh, when Senator Menendez says of the prosecutors, right. they wrote these charges as they wanted. And then he makes reference right. to his his previous case. Tell me about this. Well, the what's noteworthy here is the U.S. attorney who uh, is not making these charges. That's the U.S. attorney for the District of New Jersey who appropriately recused himself. Mm-hmm. We have the U.S. attorney, Damian Williams, from the Southern District of New York, the first African-American to hold that job. Um, he, the attorney general, once told me about Damian. He says uh, Damian is the one who overprepares. And the reason I bring that up. Now, he is the type of person who would not sign off on any type of politically motivated charge. Uh, these are really, really tight cases. And if I were Bob Menendez, I would seriously think about trying to reach some type of plea agreement. I want to uh, there are several indictments here. Uh, some of them have to do with alleg- allegedly deleting texts and emails that investigators were otherwise able to retrieve. Um, I, I want to just read uh, one of the. Yeah. portions about this from the indictment. On or about January 29th, 2019, Menendez called official two and spoke with him in an attempt uh, through advice and pressure to cause a resolution of the prosecution in New Jersey defendants' yeah. favor. In preparation for this call, Menendez requested and received multiple text messages from Nadine Menendez about the New Jersey defendant, including the charges he was facing, which Nadine Menendez, in turn, requested and received from Hana. Menendez and Nadine Menendez both subsequently deleted the text messages. Right. And then he says at some point, stop texting. Um, so this is this is this is really why this is a tight case. You have people on both sides of uh, on, on the government side who are taking contemporaneous notes here. This is straight political interference that a sitting United States senator has no business engaging in. If this is true, as the government alleges, what happens? Uh, this is a this is He's up for re-election. He is, but I don't know what the timing of these. Obviously, we've all become legal experts on when trials go to. <laughs> we have. You know, when so, trial. if we could use his last trial as um, a kind of litmus test, it was uh, two and a half years from the announcement of the indictment to, to trial. So, uh, in November 2024 is the next time that Bob Menendez faces uh, election. This case is going to be ongoing here. There are many calls for his resignation. Uh, we'll see how that plays out. But if I were uh, Democrats in New Jersey. Uh, I would seriously encourage him, even if he doesn't resign, not to stand for re-election. Right. Again, that's not in the best interest of the Democratic Party. So if convicted on all counts, and that doesn't often happen, but if yeah. he does, he could face a maximum of 45 years right. behind bars. Um, w- what's your sense of when and how uh, any kind of plea negotiation would take place? Yeah, you would think that they would have happened before now. Okay. So. Um, Bob Menendez is 69 years old. He could very well spend the rest of his life uh, in prison. Um, you would think that as a part of any plea negotiation, um, giving up his um, sentence seat would be a part of that. Maybe that 
is why now he is kind of dug in with these very strident statements because, right. you know, he and his lawyers perhaps wants to use that as a negotiating trip. Uh, as, yeah. True. To see if he whether right. yeah, if he sticks around or not. Thank you for being here. It's nice Thanks to, having nice me, to meet you, you in real life. I hope we have more occasions to talk. Very much enjoyed it. Thank all right. you. Anthony Coley. Um, all right. Much more ahead, including a dramatic expansion of the ongoing auto worker strike as thousands more workers join the picket line. And they're about to get a history making visit on the picket line from the sitting president of the United States. We'll have more on that ahead. Are you struggling to lower your bad LDL cholesterol, even though you may be taking a statin, swapping steaks for salads, and exercising while listening to this podcast? Ask your doctor if Repatha Evolocumab is right for you. With Repatha, you can dramatically reduce bad cholesterol and the risk of another heart attack while enjoying life, too, because you're human. And with convenient self-administration, you can take Repatha in the comfort of your own home. Do not take Repatha if you're allergic to it. Repatha can cause serious allergic reactions. Signs include trouble breathing or swallowing, or swelling of the face. Most common side effects include runny nose, sore throat, common cold symptoms, flu or flu-like symptoms, back pain, high blood sugar and redness, pain, or bruising at the injection site. Visit Repatha.com or call 1-844-REPATHA. Talk to your doctor today about Repatha. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Court cases related to the efforts to overturn the 2020 election are barreling ahead. The first trial in Fulton County, Georgia, the severed case involving Trump lawyers Kenneth Chesbrough and Sidney Powell will start mere weeks from now, October 23rd. Legal motions for that severed case, we'll talk about that in a second, are flying left and right, showing just how little time is left. In anticipation, we're, oh, in addition, we're anticipating big decisions related to the federal indictment of Donald Trump brought by the special counsel, Jack Smith. So a lot has happened. Let's talk about it. Joining me now is Chris Timmons. He's a former deputy chief assistant direct, district attorney who has tried both RICO cases uh, in DeKalb and Cobb counties in Georgia. Chris, good to see you. Thank you for being with good us. To see you too. Thank you for that. We're all becoming experts on Georgia state law and how it might be different from anyone else's. But let's talk about this. Uh, Chesbro and Sidney Powell succeeded in getting their cases cleaved off, severed from the, the main bunch. Chesbro's um, defense, his main defense here is that he was acting as an attorney when he wrote these memos about fake electors. Tell me about that conceptually, that that he wrote letters, uh, memos about things that were illegal to do and were the underpinning of the effort to overturn the election. But he says, I was just I was being a lawyer. Sure. So um, they filed a motion today. It was a motion to suppress those memos and not have them go before the jury. And so the argument that's in play is what's referred to as the crime fraud exception to the attorney client privilege. Right. 
Everyone who goes to an attorney uh, has that privilege. They've got an attorney-client privilege so that they can tell their attorney everything. We want people to be honest with their attorneys. However, there's an exception to the attorney-client privilege that comes about when you have a crime being planned between the attorney and the client. And that's referred to as the crime fraud exception, which then means that all of the information that ordinarily would have been confidential is now open and can be used in court. What's the line? If you're my attorney and I come to you and and there's a crime afoot, (laughs) <laughs> What's the line? When do you become part of that? When does the crime fraud exception then start to apply? Because you're not just advising me as my attorney, but somehow you're involved. Sure. So it, it, the line is time. You can tell me anything you want about things you've done in the past. But if you start talking about things we're going to be doing in the future, then the crime fraud exception comes into play. So it's, it's really a timing thing. You can tell me about all the banks you robbed. You can tell me all the people you killed. But if you're telling me about banks you're going to rob in the future. Then what's your obligation? If- at that point, then you're supposed to notify the authorities or at least tell your, your client not to do that anymore. You certainly have to go to the state bar, but you cannot involve yourself. You probably should fire your client as well. So if you're looking at this case and you're saying, all right, there is evidence that something was going on and he says that he's writing memos as as a as an attorney Tell me how you evaluate that. I mean, it's a tough call because it really comes down to his subjective belief. Did he believe that he was acting as an attorney attempting to you know, lawfully overturn an unlawful election? Or did he think that he was attempting to place the former president of the United States, or I guess at that time, the president of the United States, was he attempting to overturn an election that was actually won by Joe Biden and place uh, former President Trump into that position? So there's an interesting argument that comes up a lot in the January 6th, the federal indictment, and that is the idea that what may have started as an effort to preserve Donald Trump's rights in the event that any of the uh, audits or recounts or lawsuits went in his favor at some point turned. Yeah. It turned into an effort. It turned into a, as Georgia, Georgia, they would call it a conspiracy. Yes. And that's the important part that there may have been. And I don't know. The trial will determine this. But there may have been a point where everybody who was a lawyer was acting as a lawyer and then they weren't. Right. Exactly. I mean, so that's the point. When did you if you knew that the the election results in the state of Georgia were legitimate, if you knew that Joe Biden won the election in Jordan and there Georgia and then should have had those electors voting for him at the Electoral College and you still proceeded to attempt to overturn the election in Georgia, then at that point you switch from an attorney to a criminal. Now, most people don't care that much about uh, Chesborough and Sidney Powell, but we have to care about this because it'll be a harp. Is it a harbinger of, of what's to come in, in the case for, of the other uh, defendants? Absolutely. It's a preview. Um, I think you'll see 80 to 90 percent of the state's case uh, that they're planning on putting up against the former president in this case. I mean, RICO allows you to talk about everything that your co-conspirators have done in this particular case, Powell and Chesborough's co-conspirators include the former president of the United States. So I suspect you're going to hear a lot of evidence about what Donald Trump was up to. And when I was a prosecutor, I was pretty aggressive when I tried RICO cases. And so I wanted to, the other side to see me coming. Right. John Floyd, who's one of the attorneys in this case, cut from the same cloth. John wants you to see him coming. So I suspect he's going to show the other side exactly what they've got. Got it. Some of and that then is- it becomes a, you want to make a deal? Yeah, you want for to most come of in? them. Yeah. Donald Trump's not going to make a deal. Um, d- Chesbro submitted a list of 52 potential witnesses. That, that struck me as high, but I don't know much about these things. It is, but you're talking about a giant indictment. Um, some of the folks that he put on there, I think, are the, are the folks that are suspected to be the unindicted co-conspirators. And so I think they want to have a chance to call them as witnesses. What I would do in that particular case, if I was on the defense, is I'd want to put them up and ask them, so were you conspiring? Did you agree to these unlawful acts and have them right. say no? And so that's what they're probably going to do. Are you familiar with the judge in this case? I am. 
Tell me about them. So uh, Judge McAfee, great judge. He's a little on the young side for a judge, particularly for something that's this important. So 30, 36 or something like that? Yeah, yeah. he is. And, and, and that's, but he's, he's a former prosecutor, yeah. um, which is good since this is a criminal case. It means he knows the, uh, the rules of criminal procedure in the state of Georgia. And more importantly, he knows the rules of evidence, which yep. is crucial to a trial like this. Possibly even more importantly, he's a bit of a performer. He, he, there's there's cameras in the courtroom. I believe I he, he, one as a young man in school, he was playing the cello with his tongue or something like that. He he's he's not afraid of what the cameras in the courtroom are going to bring here. Not at all. I, I think he's going to be perfectly comfortable in this trial, and I don't expect him to act any differently because there are cameras there than he would be normally. But yeah, very nice guy, very accomplished, very bright. Uh, they 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 drew an excellent judge in this case. He's going to be a household name for us, so uh, we're getting a little preview. Uh, for those who are a little older, yeah, Lance Ito, um, he's <laughs> right. going to be similar. He said he doesn't want to be Lance Ito. Right, no. he, uh, because the whole world knew Lance Ito, uh, but I think more people will probably watch these trials than even watched OJ. The entire world will be watching yeah this trial. People in the United States watched OJ. Chris, thanks very much. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Thank you for being here. Chris Timmons. Um, All right. If you want to catch up on all four indictments against Donald Trump, you can. The Trump indictments containing all the charging documents against Donald Trump and his co-defendants complete and unabridged. It was edited and introduced by me. It comes out on Monday, so you can grab your copy next week. Keep it with you because you're going to want to consult it. All right. Today's United Auto Workers uh, the, today, the United Auto Workers president, Sean Fain, gave a video address to striking auto workers and issued this notable invitation. We invite and encourage everyone who supports our cause to join us on the picket line from our friends and families all the way up to the president of the United States. All the way up to the president of the United States. No sitting president has as far as I know, ever joined an active picket line before. That is all about to change. Today, President Biden tweeted, Tuesday, I'll go to Michigan to join the picket line and stand in solidarity with the men and women of UAW as they fight for a fair share of the value that they helped create. It's time for a win-win agreement that keeps American auto manufacturing thriving with well-paid UAW jobs. Just let that sit with you for a second. That's a tweet from the president of the United States. Very different from the tweets that we were getting a few years ago. A sitting president walking a picket line is unprecedented. But this administration has shown unprecedented support for striking workers before. In the first year of President Biden's administration, the Agriculture Secretary, Tom Vilsack, joined striking John Deere workers on the picket line in Iowa. The same year, then Labor Secretary Marty Walsh joined striking Kellogg workers on the picket line in Pennsylvania. Now, Joe Biden is set to become the first sitting president in modern history to pick a side in an ongoing labor dispute and stand with the strike. Striking auto workers. This is a major development. Joining us now is the union leader, Sarah Nelson. She's the president of the Association of Flight Attendants. Uh, Sarah, you and I were just talking about this the other day, whether the White House is prepared to uh, put a thumb on the scale on this one and how involved they'll get. Uh, there was talk that the, the, the labor secretary and uh, Gene Sperling were going to go uh, to the negotiations this week. That didn't happen. And then this. Am I making a big thing out of this or is this a very big deal that the president is going to join the striking workers? Well, this should be a big deal, but it is a big deal um, because this is unprecedented. And it is happening because this president at his core uh, is a labor guy. 
He believes in labor. He believes in labor rights. But it's also really happening. The real reason this is happening is because of the workers who are taking a stand all across the country. And this strike is historic with UAW taking on the big three automakers all at once. Never happened in history either. We're talking about a lot of firsts in history. But I've said for a long time, Start in the workplace and the politics will follow. And that's what we're seeing here. Something has happened. And, and I, I want you to help me with this because you and I have talked about strikes for several months now. There are several uh, ongoing, including the, the Writers Guild and, the, and, and SAG. There are uh, flight attendants who are poised to strike. There was the, uh, the Teamsters who didn't strike. But there's a change in tone with a lot of these labor leaders where they're coming in and saying, these are the requests we have. You might think they're outsized because they're 10 times what you ever offer us, but they're not as much as what you bosses are making. They're not as much as what the shareholders are making. And by the way, this is the moment to strike. So don't tell me to live to fight another day. This is actually when we're striking. So I want to be really clear that it's the companies that are choosing the strikes, not the other way around. And you'd see that very clearly that workers are making their demands up front. We're very clear about what our demands are. It has gone in the wrong direction for too long, essentially since Ronald Reagan fired the air traffic controllers in 1981. And it was open season on unions um, and, and a destruction of the strike. The strike is about coming to a deal. It is not about the strike. No worker wants to go on strike. Um, but we want to go on strike when the company is not being fair when they are not negotiating with us fairly. And that has been going on for too long. And so what we've said right up front with our demands is what we're willing to do. That's why UPS settled. It was a credible strike threat. It was serious from the Teamsters. That's what Mm -hmm. we're gonna continue to see. And the big three apparently didn't get the message. Let me ask you about this because um, Tim Scott, who's running for president, uh, senator from South Carolina, because just mentioned Ronald Reagan and the air traffic controller strike. This is what he said at campaign stop in Iowa. Ronald Reagan gave us a great example when federal employees decided they were going to strike. He said, you strike, you're fired. Simple concept to me, to the extent that we could use that once again, absolutely. Now, sir, you and I talk a lot because you're you're a national labor leader in this country, but you don't actually have to be a labor leader to understand the basic law in this country. You can't actually do what Tim Scott just said. You can't tell people if you strike, you're fired. He's interfering with workers' rights here, and that's why the UAW filed a ULP, an unfair labor practice against him. He doesn't have the right to do that. And he's also confusing the fact that Ronald Reagan fired the federal workers, which conceivably he was their boss. Um, The uh, president and the government is not the boss of the UAW workers. He's got the whole thing confused here, and especially he's completely out of touch with the country. He is completely out of touch with where we are right now, where workers are saying we have had enough. We're going to come together no matter what, take our fair share, because this economy, as Sean Fain has been saying, has been working for the billionaires. It hasn't been working for the working class. We're going to wreck their economy and we're going to build up our own. Let's talk about support, about where things stand, because, again, after the the, the, um, air traffic controller strike, it was open season on unions. But take a look at some recent polling from Reuters and Ipsos uh, for the support for the strikers amongst all Americans, for the auto workers, uh, 58 percent support, 32 percent oppose for the Hollywood strike, 60 percent support, 27 percent oppose. Now, that's all Americans. Let's look at this even amongst Republicans for the auto workers, more support than oppose, 48 percent support, 47 percent oppose. And for the holiday Hollywood strikes, it's a it's a dead heat. So the bottom line is public support is on the side of the unions 
even in matters where it will affect the public, whether it's the TV you watch or the parcels you don't get delivered or the cars you're not going to buy or that are going to cost you more. Or in the case of uh, flight attendants who strike the, the flights you won't fly on. But what's happened? Why is the public why is public sentiment changed so far in favor of workers? Because the public understands that going along with the rule book that has been in place for the last 40, 50 years doesn't work. The idea that the corporate elite has said to us, you should feel lucky to have a job. The, the entire country is saying, no, you should feel lucky to have our work. OK, we do not go to work uh, or we don't we don't live to go to work. Uh, we go to work to live. And so um, this is what we're doing. We're taking a stand across the country and people are identifying with what the auto workers are doing, with what the writers and the actors are doing, with what grocery workers did before them, teachers. This has been across every single industry because it has been about taking all of the productivity of our work, making us work harder for less. And everyone understands that. So the demands are the same. These tier demands to get rid of the tiers at the auto workers, you can see that in every single industry where a certain set of workers are treated different than differently mm -hmm. than others. We the jig is up. Like we know, we know the playbook now. And the playbook of us sitting back and saying that we can only think about ourselves and stay in within our own cocoon and we're gonna be okay. And we can pick up ourselves up by our bootstraps and do better. That 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 ship has sailed. OK, that narrative is gone. That is destroyed in America. And America understands that the people who are standing up for the regular Main Street person in America is the unions. When we were strong and there was shared prosperity in this country, unions were strong. And as unions have been on decline, so has the standard of living for the average American. It's time to fight back. And that's why you see the support of the strikers, because they understand this strike is about all of us. We are going to see uh, something historic this week when the president of the United States joins the uh, striking workers in Michigan. Sarah, great to see you as always. Thank you for joining us. Sarah Nelson is a major labor leader in the United States. She's the president of the Association of Flight Attendants, CWA. Thank you for joining us. What a time to be alive. Ali. It is. Thank it you. is something. Thanks, Sarah. All right. We got one more story for you tonight. Ukraine's President Zelensky scored big wins on the world stage this week. What that could mean for the future of Ukraine's self-determination is next. The goal of the present war against Ukraine is to turn our land, our people, our lives, our resources into a weapon against you, against the international rules-based order. It's been quite a week for the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, first addressing the United States General Assembly in person in New York City on Tuesday before meeting with President Joe Biden at the White House yesterday. Today, NBC News is reporting that President Biden told Zelensky that the United States will provide Ukraine with a small number of long range missiles to aid them in the war with Russia. The Army Tactical Missile System, known as ATACMS, would allow Ukraine to strike targets as far as 180 miles away, including ones well behind Russian front lines. Now, this move represents a significant victory for Zelensky, who's been asking for these weapons for months. Maybe difficult to recall today, but at the onset of Russia's war on Ukraine, some doubted that Zelensky's leadership uh, would be enough to fight for his country. Now, nearly a year and seven months since Russia's invasion, Zelensky has emerged as a global symbol for self-determination. And his presence at the United Nations and in Washington this week underscores another important point, that this war is not over, but victory may be tenuous at best. 
Winter in Ukraine was relatively mild last year. Across Europe, it was relatively mild, and that helped. But that may not be the case this time around, presenting a huge obstacle for Ukraine's military. And while Zelensky has a strong ally in the Biden administration right now, the long term viability of that support does hinge on the result of next year's presidential election. Joining me now is the retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, former director for European affairs at the National Security Council. Colonel, good to see you again. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks, Ellie. Let me ask you about this. Let's think back to those days before the war where there were people in Ukraine who had not voted for Volodymyr Zelensky because they knew that there'd be trouble with Russia and they weren't sure this guy was up to the task. There were people in America, in our intelligence and military establishment, who thought, "Uh uh-oh, this is not going to be that guy. The Americans offered to take him out of Ukraine. He refused. They offered to relocate his government to western Ukraine. He refused. And he posted videos of himself starting on night one in Kiev and said, I'm here. What a distance we've come from that night. He's he's definitely uh, um, come into his own uh, much, much more comfortable than he was at the beginning of his tenure, where he was inexperienced and wasn't sure he could tackle what seemed like insurmountable uh, problems like uh, corruption, domestic corruption, uh, figuring out how to navigate a, a war with Russia. This is before it expanded out in 2022. Uh, now he's definitely a world leader. Uh, he demonstrated that this week at the U.N. General Assembly. He took what seemed to a lot of people like a remote conflict between Russia and Ukraine uh, and uh, indicated how it actually affects the globe, whether it's energy shocks driven by Russia or food shocks and food security or the fact that the Russians are are toying with um, some sort of nuclear uh, extortion around the, the threats to destroy a nuclear power plant. And he tried to bring it home to the populations at large. I think he was largely successful, with the exception of uh, the Republican Party. Um, McCarthy, Speaker McCarthy, refused to speak to him, uh, refused to allow him to speak to a joint uh, session of Congress, and uh, didn't allow him to have that platform to advocate for his country, to make the case why this war is important, not just to Ukraine, not just to Europe, but to, to the U.S. and global security. Unfortunately, that's the nature of, of the Republican Party. And we have some headwinds there with a future funding, with, as you pointed out, with a future election in 2024, where the tides could turn and uh, Ukraine could be cut off. Well, this is actually it was a very successful week. This is interesting. And this is why people should read your book here. Right matters, because this is full circle for you. Right. The whole thing started because Congress was united behind supporting Ukraine militarily, at least with 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 funding. Uh, And Donald Trump got on a phone call and tried to stop that. You you heard that and you went and reported it up the food chain. And that resulted in the first impeachment of Donald Trump. But it used to be that Congress was all on the same side about this with I think one or two exceptions, very, very rare, the exceptions. What's happened now? What's happened to this Republican Party where they are actually putting in doubt our preparedness to stand behind Ukraine until this is is over? What's shocking is that the allies of Donald Trump in those moments were Rudy Giuliani, uh, you know, his kind of uh, his lawyer henchman. Uh, he didn't find that many allies to for his schemes. He had his his family, his Trump network, but really didn't didn't be, he wasn't successful. He had, certainly I re- reported his corruption. But since he's managed to co-opt swaths of the Republican Party, certainly the seventy congressmen that voted to cut aid back in the summer uh, were part were part of this block. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, Mike Lee, Ron Johnson, Speaker McCarthy, they're all now uh, the same kinds of henchmen that 
Trump had back in the, in the scheme in 2019, resulting in the first impeachment, but they're carrying his water. They're the ones that are playing towards some sort of, uh, you know, miraculous negotiation with Russia, handing Russia a win, uh, trying to, frankly, undermine U.S. security by undermining uh, one of our closest allies, an ally that's carrying the water and, and destroying uh, a inveterate adversary, a military that would threaten to destroy us if they had the capacity to do so. So what's amazing is that there is just an enormous amount of co- continuity between those historical moments resulting in the first impeachment and now the capture of the Rep- Republican Party that's doing the same th- same work for Donald Trump. I, I was in Kiev with your brother on the anniversary of the war. You and I were in Kiev uh, shortly thereafter. Um, and, and I don't think any of us knew or thought that this war would be going on at this point, certainly not expecting it to go to two years. Remember, this was a war that Russian experts and Western experts thought would be over in a matter of days. Um, but it's getting desperate for Zelensky. Poland has said that they're going to sort of do a little less than they have been. We've got this question with America. Where are we right now? What's going to happen? Zelensky needs to win this war. And that's not a given. Yeah. So I think the fact is that the Ukrainians are having a, real, a relatively successful go of it. Uh, it. It's hard to tell by looking at uh, you know a map and the lines moving forward or, or, uh, by, from the Ukrainian advance, but they are making significant strides. They're dis- reducing Russia's ability to defend those heavy fortifications, and they're making gains. They're making penetrations. Uh, but the things that are most apparent, so that's happening behind the scenes to experts. It's clear that the Ukrainians are making some sort of gains. They're not going to be able to break the Russian uh, military, they're not going to be able to break a Russian land bridge. But what, th- what they are going to do is get, get to some significant uh, gains on, territorially by the end of the, the, the fall. But look at the things that they have accomplished. They struck the, the Southern Military District headquarters, headqu- correction, they struck the Black Sea Fleet headquarters, destroyed this uh, really kind of a, a jewel of, of the city of Sevastopol. It is uh, a, a blow to uh, Russian power. One of the reasons that this war began in 2014 is that Russia wanted a home for its Black Sea. This was always going to be a flashpoint. It was a pla- flashpoint from 1991 yeah. when Ukraine separated and Crimea fell under Russian contr- uh, under Ukrainian control. And now it's vulnerable. That is not a safe place to be. The Black Sea fleet is vulnerable. And the whole reason for this war, at least one of the major reasons for this war starting in 2014, has now uh, been undone by this 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 foolhardy uh, attack starting in, in February 2022. Yeah, and that is an important point that the uh, the Black Sea Fleet was sort of central to this whole operation. And of course, you point out that this started in, in 2014. I'm always reminded when I'm in Ukraine uh, that people say, remember, this has been going on for a long time. Uh, we're, we're in the 10th year, I guess, or almost in the 11th year of, of fighting. Uh, Colonel, good to see you. As always, thank you for joining with us and thank you for Thanks, uh, being with us throughout this entire thing to help our audience understand exactly what's going on across the world. Lieutenant Colonel, retired Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman is the former director of European Affairs for the National Security Council and the author of Here, Right Matters, an important book. That's our show for tonight. I'm Ali Velshi in for Alex Wagner. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.